Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations and people together in new ways. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Blake Ashforth, Regents Professor and Horace Steele Arizona Heritage Chair at W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University to explore how employees are experiencing the new world of work which we're living in and what organisations can do to better support them. Blake walks us through the traditional idea of boundary crossing and transitioning between roles and work and life, the complication that remote work adds to the equation and the impact of greater integration between work and the various non-work roles. Ultimately, we uncover what employers can do to support employees, reduce burnout, and what the path forward may look like. Before we start, I want to thank all of you listeners out there. If you have a topic or a person you'd love to hear on the show, please send us an email at connectedandready at microsoft.com. We're so thankful for you all. Now, on with the episode. Blake, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show today. Um, let's start with a round of introductions. Tell me a little bit about what you do and what you're currently working on. I'm a prophet ASU, and I like to look at basically how people connect or don't connect with their work. So to what extent do people actually believe in what they do? Do they take pride in it? Are they embarrassed by it? Do they want their kids to do it? So how do we come to that happy state of, of being identified with your work? And more recently, we're looking at the dark side of all this. Uh, so historically, right, it's, it's seemed to be a good thing when you identify with your work because you're more engaged. But we're finding that you can actually take it too far. That is, people can be over-identified and in doing so, they kind of lose their independent sense of self. And that's how things like workaholism can happen and ethical behavior on behalf of the company. You kind of lose your ability to question your own behavior because you're just so into the company. So somewhere there's a fine line between identifying being a good thing, but not going too far with that. Mm, What an interesting area to study. And I can imagine this last year has probably brought up a whole host of new questions and new areas and things to think about for you. So thinking about, I guess, this emerging new world of work that we're in, how do employees find a sense of identity in their work and their workplaces that keeps them engaged, especially at challenging moments? And has this changed at all over the last year? Oh, it certainly has. Uh, Traditionally, we were very much about identifying with our organization and our job, maybe teams that we're on. And that's a pretty stable way of identifying. But in the current world, with globalization, uh, virtual work, the rise of the gig economy, you name it, it's really thrown a curve into all that. And so I think what's happening is we're seeing a shift underway where people now identify more with things like the projects they're working on, maybe their network of contacts, not so much jobs anymore, but the sort of set of knowledge, skills, and abilities they bring from task to task. So it's a more portable, a more transient way of identifying. Realize through all of this, though, people still need a sense of who they are. So no matter what you're doing, you want a sense of how you're connecting to your work. And that constant remains through all of this. So people are trying to find a new way to be engaged, even though the old pillars like the organization and the stable occupation and career are going the way of the uh, dodo. So what role does like brand have in that? You know, I'm thinking about people having that sort of sense of getting to work for either a cool company or an interesting company or a company that's well known. Is that kind of reducing as well with this sort of skill or project based identification? Yeah, companies that are known publicly, you know, the Nikes of the world have a certain cachet because everybody knows them, right? 
And so if you work for those companies, people can say that with pride. So I know a person, for example, who works for a sports team, and he's he's the pride of his town because everybody loves his team, even though his job is is quite simple, so to speak, because he works for a company with prestige, that wears off on him too. And I do think with global brands and whatnot, you're finding people do feel that kind of cachet, and not just employees, but of course, customers. Absolutely. And historically, I mean, many companies operated in a manner that kind of acted like non-work roles, you know, didn't exist or, or didn't matter or wasn't part of the identity of the person that was the employee. Of course, from a sort of practical and logistical standpoint, there's a lot of, I guess, balancing acts going on and integrating of all these different tasks and things that you have to do. But from this identity standpoint that you're kind of interested in, what does that look like in terms of the different types of roles that people are transitioning between and having to manage and kind of wrestle with on a daily basis? I mean, I'm assuming the location that people physically work in impacts this, but, you know, is it about a sort of amalgamation of identity or is it more a kind of, I'm having to switch from like mum to employee to person who does fitness stuff to whatever? All of that goes on. I mean, we're all multiple selves, right? Uh, You're an employee, you're a parent, perhaps, a spouse, perhaps, a daughter, son, neighbor, member of your church, your mosque, congregation, sports fan, all sorts of identities. And that is what makes life worth living and makes it very rich. But it makes it very hard to switch between those roles if they're quite different. So pre-COVID, when people were working in more conventional workplaces and factories and retail stores and whatnot, People would have greater separation between the two, and they could treat it as such. You leave one world, your home, you go into the next world, your office, it's a different mindset. And you would literally, by virtue of the commute, kind of exit one role, take a deep breath, and then go into the new role as essentially a different self. Well, when you're working at home, yikes, uh, suddenly those worlds are put together. And so it becomes difficult for people to kind of manage their separate identities Some people do try to combine them. Realize, though, there's a huge difference in how strong people's preferences are for integration. So normally, if you're working in an office, integration would include things like uh, having your friends for dinner, talking about your family and showing their pictures at work, bringing your pets to work, bringing your kids to online daycare, doing work at home. The more you do those things, the more you're saying it's okay if I kind of meld these identities somewhat. Other people prefer to keep them separate. Never the twain shall meet. They just find it more comfortable to have these different worlds. So realize there's a huge variance in how people's comfort factor in how they do this. The trouble with COVID, of course, is it's taken away that choice for a lot of people. They've been forced to integrate to some extent identities that they really did want to keep separate. Dynamics 365 is helping businesses of all sizes unify their data and create a digital first culture. With next generation ERP and CRM business applications, employees at every level can reason over data, predict trends, and make proactive, more informed decisions. Request a live demo of Dynamics 365 today by following the link in the episode description. You said earlier on that there's like a fine line between being able to integrate in a way that feels fulfilling and gives you a real sense of empowerment and purpose and so on and so forth with your work and what you do for a living. And then, of course, this moving into overwork, workaholism, burnout is one of the terms we hear a lot about nowadays. Is this just about preference in terms of this line or is there a kind of right way to do it? You know, should we be working to integrate our roles slash too much integration? What's your sort of perspective on that? Because we do different how much we want it, there's no one-size-fits-all model. 
That said, even people who do like to integrate, they're quite comfortable having their worlds basically cohere. Even that can be pushed too far. The trouble when your worlds are fully integrated is it becomes hard to keep them apart when you need to. Boundaries are a thing of the past. Interruptions are very common. Distractions are very common. Because our roles are different enough that they tend not to mesh seamlessly. So there was a cool study of a town in Italy, way up in the Alps, and they found that those people made no distinction between work and home and leisure. To them, it was called life. And so taking the sheep out to graze is what you did after your nap. It wasn't called work. It was just how you spent your day. In development, modern society, we've chosen to have very rigorously defined roles that are very different. So being an accountant is not being a mother. Being a parishioner is not being a sports fan. And we have many of these roles. So when we try to make them one and the same, it is very hard to pull off cognitively because these roles were meant to take care of different problems in different contexts. But that said, there are some synergies. So the things you learn in one role might apply to another role. People you meet in one role might help you out in another role. Having numerous roles gives you more resources to draw on should you need help in one area. So there are synergies, right? That said, you can take it too far. That's kind of my big point here. You can integrate too far. You can have too many roles you're trying to maintain, and it does become overwhelming for people. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that in terms of that, the effort that it takes to, I guess, shift or disengage or manage all these different roles and move between them in a, I don't want to say a seamless way because nothing's perfect, but at least a way that's manageable and not causing you distress. Is there a way to kind of get better at it to minimise the sort of undesired interruptions and mental stress that can happen in your day? I think the two big things here would be boundaries and routines. So the more integrated your roles are, the more important boundaries become, meaning that you need to have some way of marking when and where you're most involved in a particular role. So for example, let's say because of COVID, you're working at home, not by choice, but there you are. The gold standard would be to have a private office or at least some place where you can close the door and do your thing. Barring that, some space in your apartment or house where you can block that off or have some kind of divider that signals to whoever you're living with that, hey, leave me alone, I'm working. So there's physical markers that say, here's my workspace. Also temporal markers, when are you doing this? So can you actually schedule times to work or can you at least have an agenda where you know roughly when you're doing what so you're available to your coworkers and your clients? And it's very important that the people you live with understand and respect these boundaries. So establishing markers is very big because that allows you to mentally enter the role as you enter that physical space and you clock in at the time you set aside for work. The other thing is routines or rituals ways that help you mentally disengage one role and go into the other. So historically, the commute was the way you did that, right? You get in your car or on the subway, and in the course of doing that, you kind of literally flush your thoughts about this morning and your kid crying and the problem with your taxes. And as you get to work, you start thinking about the day ahead and what's on your schedule and who you're going to meet. By the time you get there, you're in a different frame of mind. And conversely, for the commute home, you kind of unwind and get back into the mode of being a family person again. Well, nowadays, if you're working from home, of course, or you're working at a coffee shop or whatever, that kind of commute isn't, uh, is very truncated. So people develop pretty clever ways of signaling to themselves it's time to get into it. Uh, some might actually dress for work, even though they're not going to be on video conference that day. Some consider reading their news feed, their entree to work for that day, or having that cup of coffee, or reading the Wall Street Journal. So we tend to have different ways of saying to ourselves, okay, it's now time to get into work. You do need to give yourself that mental space. It's hard to just snap your fingers and be one into the other. Well, the more you do it, the more facile you become at doing it. You develop these scripts. 
so it becomes easier to enter a role. So, for example, I was interviewing a funeral director years ago, and I, I asked him, how, when you're sitting at home watching a hockey game, literally, do you turn on the funeral director mentality when the phone rings and there's someone who needs your services? He said, I've been doing it for 30 years. I hear the phone and boom, I'm on. But realize it took him a long time to get to that mode because you go from being a hockey fan rejoicing at your team to suddenly being very somber, completely empathetic with this person who's obviously suffering there of the phone. That isn't easy. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes to do it. One of the things we've been talking about, particularly because we have been focusing a lot on remote working, is this kind of distinction between doing remote work well or making remote work work for <laughs> to make it a bit more of an interesting way of putting it versus working from home during a pandemic and sort of separating these things right and when we're thinking about what we're talking about today with the sort of management of roles and again burnout is we're hearing so much about it's almost as if people weren't quite prepared or knew how to manage this completely different way of working. And obviously many things play into that, but one of them, of course, being this kind of identity shift thing. When it comes to thinking about companies moving forward, perhaps going, okay, working from home hasn't been perfect, so let's try and work out how can we can do remote working well. What does it look like to sort of plan for this kind of shift for people? Because I, I can imagine it's perhaps not something you're going to understand or appreciate as part of it until you're kind of already doing it. And by that point, it might be too late, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I do think coming out of COVID, a lot of companies have discovered they've saved a lot of money mm. <laughs> by having people work at home. At least they can once they let the leases go. Even though the research is mixed about the effect of working from home virtually, on performance, I think generally speaking, companies have been pleasantly surprised when they've done it. The fear was, of course, that if employees work from home, they're no longer under management's thumb. And if you see your job as one of micromanaging, uh-oh, suddenly you don't have a job. And so managers were leery about this idea of people working from home. But the pleasant surprise was, in fact, that generally speaking, people respond to the challenge well. They actually appreciate being given the chance to work at home. And they respond accordingly. Uh, and so performance does well. So coming out of COVID, we're going to see companies saying, okay, hmm, there's some potential here. The key thing, though, is having choice going forward when companies can actually be more thoughtful about this. It's a good idea, again, not to impose a one-size-fits-all model for everybody, but to think through how can we make it available in a way that still lets us work as a collective together. So, for example, let's say you're doing something that's highly collaborative, requires teamwork and two people want to work from home and three do not. Okay, how do you do that? Do you meet at certain times of the day? Do you agree on a video conferencing? How, how do you do it? So it's important to sort of think through the permutations as opposed to have one size fits all models. Mm, especially if uh, the two people who do want to work in the office, part of the reason they want to work in the office is because they want to be with all the rest of them. <laughs> and then the others want right. to be at home, right? It completely changes that whole dynamic. And the people who do want to be in the office, there's a reason for it, right? Speaking of boundaries and routines, well, moving to the office gives you the commute, which frees you to think about the job. You're in your environment of work and you have all the cues there to say, okay, time to knuckle down and get to work. You get the people around you to talk to. Maybe you really like your coworkers and enjoy talking to them. Maybe you love the give and take with clients. There's a reason why people love to be in the office. Mm. So I'm one of those people who was forced to be at home the last year because of COVID, but I can't wait to get back to the office full time because I really do miss my colleagues and my students. Yeah. So realize, you know, this isn't for everybody staying at home. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a bit more generally then about burnout and sort of disengagement of employees, whether we're talking about it in this remote context or getting back to office or indeed trying to employ these hybrid models. Would you say it's as a result of what the organisation or manager does or is it more linked to how well an employee can kind of manage or transition between these these various roles? You know, walk us through this and, and what organisations can do to sort of minimise these various effects. At its root, burnout refers to just a sense of exhaustion. You've been trying to do a good job, but your battery has just run dry. You just haven't got the energy to do more. You might want to, but you literally feel like you're bled dry. And that can be caused by a number of things. Now, in the COVID world, it may well be caused by trying to work from home when you've got a chaotic situation, you're homeschooling, and your wife or your husband also works from home. So that has contributed to burnout. People just feel exhausted trying to juggle these roles that normally are more separate. It can also come from the work itself in the sense the work is just too demanding. Maybe you have uh, too much to do or ambiguous signals from your boss or conflicting expectations from different people. So burnout is traditionally can come from the job itself. But in COVID, I think it also comes from having to manage this odd thing of working from home when you're not used to. I'm curious then, keep bearing all that in mind, you know, what can organizations do to help uh, I guess, minimize these effects, not just for productivity of business, but, you know, duty of care to their employees. So I was talking to a manager and his basic philosophy was no news is good news. So if employees didn't hear from me, assume it's good. That is really wrongheaded thinking, because if you wait that long, then people who are burning out are often too far gone to redeem. And so if people are truly floundering, Letting them flounder before it shows up in their performance is often too late. So as a manager, what you want to do is be on top of the situation. You want to reach out proactively to connect with people that are distanced from you to find out how they're doing. And I don't mean in a heavy-handed micromanaging way. You're not there to second-guess what they're doing. You're there to simply say, hey, I'm out here. How's it going? How can I help you? And do it in an active way that communicates that the employee knows that they're noticed and that they're appreciated and they're respected and there's resources there to help them should they need it. So just feeling that someone actually is out there and can empathize with the difficulty you're going through is quite huge. Also, best practices. Sometimes people are reluctant to speak to their bosses because of status differences. You don't want to seem like you don't know what you're doing or you're not doing well. But reaching out to your peers who are at your level, that can be a, a safe way of talking to people who are doing just what you're doing. And they can share their best practices. What are they doing about daycare? And what are they doing about homeschooling? So it's great to feel that you're in it together. People can put up with a lot of grief if they're in the same boat together because they know they're all rowing in the same direction. And it energizes you to know that if we just keep on pulling on our oars together, we're going to get through this someday. So I think the job of the manager is to enable people to feel that sense of support. And then they think you can actually do it, provide that support, you know, up, upgrade your Wi-Fi, new laptop, whatever it takes to actually make your physical work work better as well. So thinking about the manager, because there's obviously a lot of power here in the manager person and in that individual, whether it's coming up with new experiments to try with teams to make them feel more valued and so on and so forth, or even just changing the tone of conversation and culture. There's obviously a huge role there for the manager themselves. But thinking also about their role, right, you know, they are tasked with building and empowering productive teams. But then they're also now being asked to be supportive and accepting and, and, and all these other kind of roles, which might sometimes feel conflicting and maybe at odds at what they've been taught the role of the manager is. 
and of course maybe in conflicts with what whoever is managing them is asking of them so how do you kind of see all this playing out from the manager's standpoint how can they I guess manage their own perhaps internal conflict to ensure that they can play that role well yeah that's a big question so traditionally, it was very much a command and control world where as a manager, your job really was to be an overseer. But here's the secret. The more you give power away, the more you get it back in the sense that when you've got an empowered workforce, they tend to respond to the challenge and do very well when they're able to exercise their own autonomy. And that frees you as a manager to do things that are truly more managerial, things like procuring resources or new clients or thinking about strategy or connecting with other departments, things that don't require you to spend all your time micromanaging. Where it becomes really challenging, though, is when you're in a culture that doesn't support that kind of management. You're getting messages that you're not, you know, you you should be cracking the whip. So managing up is actually a huge part of what managers do. Middle managers or frontline managers really are caught in the middle because they're trying to appease both worlds, both their frontline employees, but also the people above them who might have different expectations. The good news is that performance speaks for itself. So if you are doing things that are counter-cultural, but they are seen to pay off, then if you've got a good senior manager, that gets him or her thinking, oh, okay, tell me more. And so you can get these small demonstration projects that actually catch on. So there's a cool book called um, Radical, ah, never mind. It's all about people who have really cool ideas for changing the culture and they launch limited experiments that catch on in the company, so much so the people above them notice and then actually ask them to roll it out company-wide. And so what you're seeing then is the culture itself change. So have the courage of your convictions. If you're a manager and believe that respect, autonomy, and support is the way to go, then you will see good results, which become validating for your approach. From an individual standpoint, I mean, a lot of the... um I guess, discourse um, and rhetoric around around burnout and the, the top tips that you often see from the influencers out there that write about things like burnout is this switching off, this like entire idea of either, you know, stopping working or taking a really extended break or and obviously that there's a level of privilege that comes from those kind of decisions, whether you work for yourself and you're able to do that or you have money in the bank, you can leave a job or whatever. What's the sort of, I guess, realistic conversation around these things? Because that's not the reality for so many people. And particularly if you're talking about it from a an organisational standpoint, yes, of course, organisations have a duty of care and they have to be able to provide sick leave and space for employees to be well. But there's also a reality to the situation where you also need employees and you need people to be able to do the work. So how do you kind of tackle these, what might feel like conflicting messages to some degree of what's sort of being said to individuals about this kind of switch off, try and, you know, take a break somehow. Um, But at the same time, the reality of, well, you need to earn a living and a business can't survive without all its employees. Yeah, the reality is that companies look at burnout usually as an individual level problem. Just like I was saying earlier on, traditionally, we looked at people managing their home life as a personal problem. So too with burnout. So if you're burning out, that's up to you. You go ahead and solve it, which is crazy because we all understand what causes burnout and it's caused by asking more than we can do. So the solution is as much about the organization and what they can do for you as it is you, the individual, trying to solve your own problems. So it's important to actually be actively, proactively involved in managing burnout. So for example, preemptively, you can uh, make sure that people do have frequent breaks, that you rotate them to other less onerous tasks periodically so that they get a relief from doing something. The key thing, though, is proactivity. I want to really stress that, right? Because burnout being so pernicious is like a snowball rolling downhill. The more it builds, the harder it is to stop. 
to the point where the person might literally be unable to continue in that job at all. And that's that's no good for anybody. Right. And so you want to you want to nip this early. So if a person is in an inherently stressful job, then you do want to provide frequent breaks. So, for example, it's a trivial example, but it's, it works. So in Las Vegas, if you're a dealer, they rotate you almost every 15 minutes or so. It's some, it's some very brief period of time, precisely because they need you to be totally on your game, engaged with the game that you're administering in real time. And, and it can be, you can so easily just get in the moment fatigued that they pull you out very quickly. Air traffic controllers, you name it. In high stressful occupations, you want to build in breaks or rotations so that people can step out of their skin. You've heard the phrase, a change is as good as a rest. That is very true. A change is as good as a rest. So even doing something different for a while gives you that psychological break you need so you feel more recharged when you come back to do the job. Right. Breaks can also be can also be longer term. I mean, if a person's really in trouble, yeah, you can give them a, a sick leave or encourage a vacation or something. Yes, that's for further down the road when they're actually really hurting. Uh, but you want to preemptively try and deal with that earlier. Absolutely. Um, thinking about then actual workspaces and workplaces and, and cultures and thinking about these, going back to this idea of the various roles that people play and, well, uh, literally live, don't just act or play. What do companies need to do or offer to better support this, the kind of the whole employee across all the different roles? You know, thinking things like on-site childcare, is that going to be more important? Pets allowed in the office? Um, do we have to restructure benefits for non-traditional family structures? What would be some of your suggestions there to, to really think about this consideration of the whole employee as opposed to just the worker? So you want to tread carefully here, right? Because you are trying to respect the fact the person is wearing many hats and they all matter to the person, as they should. That's what makes society work. At the same time, because we do differ on how much we want that kind of integration, you want to be careful how far you push it. So a good example is on-site daycare. That is terrific for parents who see that as a big help to them. A lot, though, might feel a bit squeamish. It's like a company town. Uh-oh, my kid's now, <laughs> my kid's now under the eye of my employer. So it's not for everybody. Perfect. That's okay. As an employer, you provide the option, but you respect those kinds of individual differences. Benefits, you mentioned, that's a great example. You can have cafeteria-style benefits that allow people to choose what mix of things work best for them. So if I'm a young person, I'm all about getting money so I can save for a mortgage. If I'm an older person, I'm more about the healthcare options and what I'm going to do about retirement. So by having a cafeteria-style benefit plan, you're allowing people to kind of personalize what they need that works best for them. More expensive to administer, yes, but I think our technology, the software is good enough nowadays that you can be done fairly simply. Do you think that there's still a mindset shift required for all this? Because I think um, we can suggest policies, we can talk about the benefits that aren't just, you know, it's not just a company being nice. It's about, you know, there's also productivity and a cost saving element to all this. But do you think that the sort of work culture that we're in right now, and obviously it will differ across geographies and types of companies and industries and so on and so forth, is really there because you hear this in the sort of popular media discourse right the it's kind of obvious that we need to have more inclusive workplaces and we have to have different policies that allow for different kinds of life we i i'm pretty sure we know that it's uh, useful to do all this stuff for companies to thrive and yet it's not necessarily happening across the board so is it a mindset thing is it a convincing thing is it a status quo thing like what's stopping companies from just doing this right now it's very much a mindset because the traditional view of management really was command and control and employees' problems were their own problems. But I think the companies that actually take a more enlightened view realize they can do well by doing good. 
So in fact, if you create cultures that are truly supportive of your individual employees, then they tend to work harder, uh, they feel better, they stay on the job longer, and they're better with their customers. In other words, the companies perform better. So there's lots of good examples of companies that have said, we are going to invest in our employees. It's no longer an expense. We see this as an investment in their future. And by doing it, we're getting back employees who are that much more engaged in their work and they do well by it. So companies that have taken that road, like Whole Foods, Ikea, uh, Starbucks, when they take that road, then they find that the investment pays off because they're getting employees who are truly really engaged in their work. So yes, it has real world payoffs if you treat your employees well. Unfortunately, so many managers are kind of caught in this ancient mindset where it's all about eking out as much as you can for your employee. And if they get burned out, but damn, that's their problem. Mm. But where is that coming from? I mean, is it there is mindset, of course, but is there also a sort of short-termism thing here, right? I mean, we hear this a lot about when there's a resistance to either investing in new things, whether it's new technologies or, or, or new policies or new ideas. It's always oh, really expensive to implement this when really a, a lot of the stuff you're thinking, surely this can't be that expensive to do. So is there a cost pressure perhaps from, you know, shareholders or something? Or I, I'm just trying to think of, I suppose it's hard to believe that it's just old school management thought, particularly as new generations come through the ranks. I think short termism is itself a mindset that is dysfunctional because it's always easy to say, oh, we'll get around to it tomorrow when we're flush. Right now, sorry, the money's not good. Quarterly reports coming up, angry clients. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And of course, tomorrow never comes. So the thing with a short term mindset is you're never thinking about investments because investments by definition don't pay off right away. So take a longer term perspective. If you're a manager, realize that the company hopefully is in it for the long haul, which means you do want to invest in your human resources. You want them to actually care about where they're working and not just your employees, but all stakeholders. So companies that have the triple bottom line, you know, uh, profits, people, planet, uh, they tend to do quite well. It's again, not universal, but they tend to do quite well precisely because their stakeholders go, huh, this is a company that actually gets this more than just making a lot of money for the stock market. And in doing so, it inspires people to work that much harder, inspires clients to patronize you that much more. It makes communities more welcoming of you as an employer. And so it tends to work. But yes, it is a long-term view which requires investment. And those can be two dirty words if your mindset is all about the short term. You can always make excuses not to do this. Mm. I guess then also the question is how much of a change is it today right this idea of like we'll do it tomorrow because you know you could argue well you know you know one of the suggestions we have in one of our other episodes was you know um no meetings on friday and that seems like a very simple thing to implement literally right now you just send an email to your team and say we're now no longer doing meetings on friday the ones that we have booked in for the next two weeks i've shifted already hope you can make it you know it's a signal it's just a tiny thing that surely can't cost that much maybe a little bit of annoying scheduling for a couple of weeks but realistically not that much so is it is there something to do with like the perception of the amount of change needed as well i think there can be a tipping point where the more you have these little experiments like your no friday meetings and they pay off the more you realize maybe there is a bigger picture here mm. that's ultimately about trying to do these longer term investments and there are all sorts of ways that you can respect your individual employees. And I think companies are really cool in the creative ways they're actually doing that. You'll find that companies have all sorts of cool things that they're trying. Some work, some don't. But the basic message is how can we respect the individuality of our employees in a way that lets them feel appreciated? And if you can pull that off, you get a dedicated workforce. 
Final question for you, Blake. You know, looking ahead as this, you know, new world of work continues to develop and change for both organisations and employees, what should companies be doing now to understand what their employees need moving forward to be both engaged at work, but also feel empowered outside of work? I think probably the two single, well, three things you might do that are universally good. First one is simple respect. But the reality is so many organizations simply don't treat their employees with respect. When you ask employees about what they want from their manager, one of the top things, if not the top thing, is simple respect. And yet many, I want to say a small majority, maybe a large minority, will say they don't get that respect. Respect is free. Respect is free. All it requires is that you show people you value who they are, that you empathize with their the problems and their stresses, and you're trying to help them. The other, uh, it takes more work, is autonomy, empowerment. That is giving people more of a say about how, where, when, why, and who they do their work with. And we've been talking about working from home. That's a great example of that. So companies that are allowing employees to work from home are providing a huge chunk of empowerment because almost by definition, when you work from home, you've got to worry about how you schedule your own tasks and there's a lot more power, if you like, in your day for how you go about doing your work. And the third thing is support. That is, especially when people work from home, uh, they very much need to feel like they're being noticed and appreciated. It is not a no news is good news story, just the opposite. And so feeling that there's people out there who are there to help you, they have your back should you need it, is a great bunch of warm air beneath you to make you feel like you're buoyed and can carry forward. So respect, autonomy, and support, I think, are three universal things that are actually pretty cheap to provide, and yet make a world of difference in terms of people's engagement with their work and their willing to, willingness to stick it out long term. Lovely, Blake. That's, I think that's a really nice note to end on. And as you say, really quite simple, extremely cheap, and hopefully implementable right now as opposed to tomorrow as opposed to keeping putting it off and maybe that's a sort of call to action for everybody listening how can you do a little bit of each of those right now in order to make your your workplace a much better place for both you and the employees um, and the individuals as a whole so Blake thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show my pleasure again it's been a treat that's it for this week thank you so much for tuning in You can find out more about Blake's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please do take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to hit subscribe and tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed. Dynamics 365 delivers next-generation ERP and CRM business applications, helping employees at every level reason over data, predict trends, and make proactive, more informed decisions. Request a live demo of Dynamics 365 today by following the link in the episode description.